Let's look at a U.S. football team. There are 53 men on the active roster and one head coach. It is absolutely naive to think that that one head coach is going to see all the opportunities for all 53 men and challenge each of them in the right place at the right time with the right challenge to get the most out of them. And I think teams in the corporate world are exactly the same. So when I say we challenge each other, you are not allowed to, you are obligated to challenge peer-to-peer, challenge your leader, challenge members of your own team, challenge across the organization. You are obligated to do so as long as you bring data and or experience with that challenge. And the result of that is we, we recognize it, we're open and transparent about our areas of opportunity. When one person is open to challenging another, we get two different perspectives on the same topic, if not more. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion. Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a former corporate executive of three Fortune 10 firms, a leadership expert, and a best-selling author of Begin With We. Our guest education includes a BA mass communication from the University of South Florida and an MBA from Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management. He has an impressive track record of delivering great business results while leading tens of thousands of employees at some of America's largest corporations included United Health Group, CVS Health, Maximus, and Bank of America. I have the special opportunity to share with you a game-changing leader who is helping organizations create a culture of excellence through shifting the focus from I, me, my, to we, Carl McDowell. Carl, welcome to the show. Hey, Craig. Great to be here, man. What an introduction. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream running around the playground uh, during lunch? I grew up in a very rural area of Florida. Um, we are known as the the, uh, the strawberry capital of the world. Uh, so I grew up in a small, small town called Plant City, Florida. And uh, the, the childhood dream was to always be an NFL quarterback. I had uh, aspirations of playing professional football. Um my skill level did not match my desire, so it never it never happened. Um, and I just found myself uh, in the middle of a of a of a really cool journey inside of corporate America. So, you know, it was always I, so. Now I just watched from from afar, but I, that was the goal and the dream early on, but um, wasn't to be. Do you still have the mindset of a quarterback, even though you may not have had the physical skills at the time? A thousand percent. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there, 
you know, I'm asked often, you know, where do I get or where did I get my kind of um, my fascination or my love for leadership? Because it is something that I, I'm a student of leadership. It's something that I've always been fascinated by, you know, how to get the most out of people aligning around this, a common cause or a series of goals and delivering something as a unit that no one person in that unit could have delivered. Mm. And um, I attribute yeah. all of that to very early days on the football field. I started playing football when I was six years old. Uh, and then play through through high school. And, you know, it, there's a lot of similarities in the world of sports and in leadership in in the business world, leadership outside the business world. I think, you know, there's a lot of, of commonalities that I, I lean on and against in scenarios that I experienced as a team member on a football team that I think are applicable uh, to my to my life today, many, many years later. So what do you think are those most crucial common elements and then maybe... Give us an insight to what you think is different between sport and corporate from a leadership perspective and team dynamics. Yeah, you bet, Craig. So the the commonality is, to me, it's very obvious. It's people. And whether I am trying to get someone to perform um, from a physical perspective or from an intellectual or even a, an emotional uh, perspective, the, the, the commonality is we're dealing with people. You know, I've, I've made some, um, a couple of times throughout my career in, in the corporate world, I jumped from one industry to another, having very little experience or exposure into the new industry. And I always found comfort in, listen, man, it's, it's people. Yeah. 15,000 people in this organization, jump ship, go somewhere else to a completely different industry. 15,000 people in this organization as well. At the end of the day, it's just people. So I think if we, if we, if we agree on that, um, how you get the most out of out of individuals, whether it be a, an athletic environment or the corporate world, that changes a little bit because you know to your point or question around the contrary um, kind of aspects. It's uh, I can as a as an athlete, you can say you know get your butt in the gym, do more reps, and your results are are often um, you can see them. You can you know you you're, you're sore the next day. You put in the work one day, you're sore the next day. You know, you're out of breath, you're out of gas, those types of things. It's a little bit different when we push ourselves in the corporate world, although some of the health impacts are are similar. We can push ourselves too hard and have have adverse reactions in, in that regard. So I think how you get there is a little bit different, but what is similar is just this notion of, of getting a group of people to deliver on a common cause or against a common cause against sometimes really, really, really tall odds. Mm. Yeah, I like that approach. You know, one of the biggest things I find is that when you're an athlete, uh, depending on what sports, but many sports, you probably spend around 95 to 98% of your time planning, preparing, training, obviously, and only 2 to 5% of your time actually performing. Whereas Doing. Yeah. when you go into the corporate world, it's the complete opposite. Not, not many people do much planning, preparing, training to be good at what they do. They're just in performing mode the whole time. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious for you, have you been able to figure out a way where we can get people to spend more time to really make sure that, that they build up their skills and they're prepared for meetings and they're prepared for what they're doing rather than just trying to go into that performance and doing mode all the time? Yeah, man, I love that question because I think it's at the heart of a lot of leader or leadership dysfunction in the corporate world. And let me a little deeper on that so we see it all the time any most times when someone is promoted into a position of let's say management because that doesn't make you a leader as you know let's they, they get promoted to a position now where they have a, a group of direct reports hmm. um 
too often, I mean, a, the lion's share of these promotions are because the person being promoted can do the job. They know the X's and O's of what it takes to be effective in that role, but that does not make them a good leader. That does not put them in a position to inspire and motivate those around them and kind of, you know, uh, and create a culture, what I call a culture of excellence. Most organizations over-index on the hard skills, like how do you actually execute the X's and O's portion of this job, but don't take the time to develop the person as a leader. And that's when we have real problems because what happens is, and I'm sure you've seen it. So, you know, someone gets promoted into a new role of management and, you know, prior to that promotion, they probably would tell you about the characteristics or traits of their boss that they loathe. The Mm. things that don't motivate them, the things that they say kind of get in the way of them being excellent in their current role. Well, when that person gets promoted, more often than not, they take on those same characteristics because they want to endear themselves to the person that helped put them in that new leadership role, uh, which is a real shame. So, but what happens is we get this cycle of dysfunction and toxicity and bad leaders because no one says enough. Let's take this a little bit differently. I want to be the leader I never had. Mm. So it's important to recognize, like when we go into these new roles, don't assume that the person you just promoted is going to be a great leader just because they excelled at the delivery of that same uh, widget, for lack of a better expression. They've got to have, just like everything else in life, you've got to work hard to become better at something, especially becoming a leader, because now you're responsible for, you know, in my case, uh, 10, 15,000 people. Ah, yeah. So it's such a big difference between being that great individual contributor versus being that great people leader. I was having a good conversation with someone around this the other day around remuneration. And sometimes we get this wrong because we think remuneration, all right, the only way, like we move up, we're, we're kind of in that role for a while, we get good, we become a senior, become kind of uh, great at what we do. But then the next step to get more remuneration as an employee is to become a manager and then a leader, then an executive, and then the CEO. So maybe we need to rethink a little bit around the way that we remunerate people inside organizations because just because someone is a great individual contributor, that should not be the handbrake to their to their pay package or their salary because, you know, or someone who's not such a good individual contributor who's a really great people leader, maybe they should be at even remuneration rather than being at different levels uh, throughout an organization. I'm not sure how easy it is to pull that remuneration off. I'm sure there are companies already doing something similar, but to me, that would make more sense. I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, I would add even another element. Um, We often over-index on the KPIs, the metrics, mm. and we reward based on the delivery of those things, the KP, you know, the, the black and white success criteria. But rarely is someone's impact from a management, from a, say, so let's say a leadership perspective. We don't usually bonus and compensate on someone's impact on the culture of the organization. And I, and I got to the point where when I, before I stepped away from corporate America, that I was adamant about a, a, including leadership criteria and culture uh, defining um, aspects and traits inside the annual review. So when I would sit down with my employees to go over, you know, their their previous quarter or their previous year's results, of course we would go deep on on the metrics, but also how many people did you help get promoted? You know, did you what leadership investment did you make? Did you take on uh, say some leadership classes? Did you teach leadership classes? Like what did you do other than deliver great results, which we're very grateful for? 
but it's got to be a sustainable approach to those great results. You know, anyone can bang on a desk and get great results for a finite period of time. But if we go at it with what did you do to improve the organization? And I don't mean from a top line perspective, I mean, creating an engaging workforce where the culture encourages people to speak their mind and be their best and come to work, not feeling filtered and, and, and oppressed. What did you do to advance that? I think there's a, a key component that a lot of companies miss in, in how we compensate our folks. Were you also looking at kind of that leadership and culture perspective, not only from those that were in people or leadership roles, but also those that were great individual contributors? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think like everything else in life, Craig, this is a little bit situational because there are certainly, um, there are members of the team, individual contributors who don't want to be on stage. I don't mean, I don't mean uh, literally that they, they don't want the spotlight. They want to come to work. They want to keep their head down. They want to clock in, clock out. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need folks like that. We need people that are really invested in doing a great job. So how we recognize, I, I don't think it's fair to say, you know, for all people, we want to have this conversation or include it in their, in their annual review, because some people simply, they want to come in, do their job and go home. And I love that for them. So I, I don't want to hold them to the same standard as someone that is, you know, trying to take on more that wants to ultimately land in some type of leadership position, or maybe get promoted into another individual contributor role. Those are the types of people that I want to have those conversations with. Yeah. So just maybe think about another difference between sport and corporate right in sport it's the great individual contributors that quite often get paid a hell of a lot more than the <laughs> than the people leaders um you know not all it's not always the person who is the best player is the captain or you know and the coach quite often doesn't get as much money as the, as the right. senior players whereas in corporate it's it's a bit of an opposite in most cases it's the opposite where the leaders get paid a lot more than the great individual contributors of the team. So it's a fascinating conversation. And Interesting. I'm not sure if everyone looks at it from that perspective sometimes. I haven't thought of that juxtaposition. That's really, it's really kind of telling in some ways. Um, you know what I did think of uh, recently though, and I shared this with a group of people, I was on stage and it hit me at once. It's like, you know, we, we reserve the word legacy for, for people that we put on a pedestal, certainly athletes, right? You talk about what is Michael Jordan's legacy? What is Tom Brady's legacy? The greats in their in their domain, right? I think we have a leadership legacy. I think we have a corporate uh, responsibility legacy. I think we have a legacy in all aspects of our lives. But we, I don't think many people consider that because you don't think of leadership and legacy in the same sentence very often. But I, I can, I'm sure you you have a similar um, kind of plight in that. I can look back throughout my entire career and there are a number of people who had a tremendous impact on me and where I sit today. And that is their legacy in my mind. Mm. So I, I, I approach, I approach that very similarly to say, you know, maybe a Tom Brady or someone on the Mount Rushmore of whatever their sport is. And that I want to be remembered for certain things. Certainly I didn't throw for, you know, 400 yards a game, but I, I, I'd like to think I had quite an impact on many people's journey throughout their professional lives. So I, 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 there's so many similarities that we could probably spend all day on that one. But I think that's a big one is approaching like you want to have an impact. You want to have a lasting impact as a leader. Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in Gravity of Leadership is carry the torch. And so no matter what role you're in or whether you're in a family, you get, you get past the torch and your job is to protect it, enhance it and leave it in a better place when you hand it off to someone no, else true. in the future or... Um, to another group of people if it is a business type thing. So, um, so yeah, I love 
that legacy piece around being a custodian and a stewardship and how you those impacts along the way are so so important. important and it's not as you say it's not just the Michael Jordans or the Tom Brady's or the Roger Federer's etc it is each individual people has an opportunity or does leave a legacy whether it's a good legacy or a positive uh, or a bad legacy um, that's right you know you're gifted with something you it's not a right it's a responsibility when you get a role get given a role you become a parent or you take over a community group or whatever um, that role may be, it's a responsibility. It's not just a right to have that leadership position. It is your responsibility now to enhance it and protect it in a way. Yeah, and not man. just disregard what's happened in the future. I think that happens a bit too much sometimes too, where people literally, they come in and go, oh, that was all wrong and, and broken. So they totally disregard it, but not realizing how much impact certain aspects of what they did has had on the organization there were reasons maybe why they did something along the way um, yeah. so not disregard yeah. it but respect it and then go okay cool let's protect what we need to and then enhance what what needs to change and move forward oh that's so well said greg that's so well said and i'll go a step further than responsibility it's a privilege mm. i think it's a privilege to lead whether it's in a in a formal capacity in corporate in the corporate world or the chess team the bowling team when people look to one other person as kind of the 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 one who's going to set the tone, the temperature, and we're going to lean into that person when things get difficult, and we rely on that person, and they and we know they have our back in 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 tough times, and they're also the first to cheer us on when we have something to celebrate. I think it's I think it's a hell of a privilege. I think it is. Yeah, hundred percent. So. You know, you're talking about leading teams of tens of thousands of people, you know, 15,000 people, 14,000 people, you know, it's a lot of people. You know, what's what I find fascinating is I think the DNA of human beings is we're all separated by a maximum of 1%. Um, our DNA is, you know, that's the difference between us. Uh, I think chimpanzees is 2%. However, we're such unique individuals that everyone uh looks and feels and is quite different in the way they act and behave and yeah. and and i find that fascinating um when it comes to that team dynamic that team culture bringing people together i hear a lot of people talking about harmony but i feel that harmony is like a handbrake to high performance and to Ooh. me um we need I unity we need unity but not harmony because if you've got harmony it's actually a weak system because it means everyone's compromising for for a central um, to keep everyone happy in a way versus yeah. we're united about one thing that keeps us together but it allows us to be who we are and our differences and i've really noticed this in high performance sport and teams is the more you try and bring people together to keep them happy and keep the peace the weaker the system gets and the lower the performance becomes over time. You might get a quick hit, but then over time, it just starts to disintegrate. I'm curious from your perspective, what you've seen and how you approach kind of that team dynamic point of view and team culture. I, I first must, must um, as emphatically as I can, agree with the premise of your question. And that is uh, harmony Harmony is not the recipe for progress. Harmony is not the recipe for innovation. Um, it may feel good and it may be, frankly, I think it's easier um, than, than an environment or a team culture that encourages challenge. 
you know, I wrote this, the, the premise of my book is, uh, these 10 principles that I developed and they're called the 10 we's and they are, uh, they're, they're kind of the, the, the governing, uh, set of principles, uh, that dictate how we treat each other behind the curtain as a team first. And then we apply those same principles to those that we serve externally. And my favorite of all those principles, and it's right in line with your question is we number eight, and that's, we challenge each other. Now I, I include a one word sentence every time I talk about this, we, and the, the one word following sentence is diplomatically, right. um, and challenges must come in the form of either data or experience because otherwise it's just an opinion and, and we all have one of those and it's not necessarily terribly helpful, but when you can support it with experience, uh, or data, you've got a lot more, uh, a stronger leg to stand on. I just happen to believe, and it's, and, and by the way, I'm going to go back to the sporting analogy for a moment as well, because, um, let's, let's look at a U.S. football team. There are 53 men on the active roster and one head coach. It is absolutely naive to think that that one head coach is going to see all the opportunities for all 53 men and challenge each of them in the right place at the right time with the right challenge to get the most out of them. And I think teams in the corporate world are exactly the same. So when I say we challenge each other, you are not allowed to, you are obligated to challenge peer to peer, challenge your leader, challenge members of your own team, challenge across the organization. You are obligated to do so as long as you bring data and or experience with that challenge. And the result of that is we, we recognize it, we're open and transparent about our areas of opportunity. When one person is open to challenging another, we get two different perspectives on the same topic, if not more. I, I'll never forget when I first introduced this principle. My staff meetings went from readouts, which we've all seen, you know, the boss sits at the end of the table and everyone else sits around the table and each member of the team goes through their updates. And the only other person paying attention during those updates, most likely most of the time is the boss at the end of the table. When I introduced these principles, including we challenge each other, these became conversations. So as one person would give his or her update, the next person knew if he or, or she heard something that was not consistent with what they've observed or what maybe they've heard from their team members or whatever, they are now obligated to say, hang on a second. I, I heard what you just said, but I was looking at this report and it shows something quite different. Can we talk about this? So it creates this environment where each person, and it's not confrontational. Um, and the beauty of it is, and this is an unintended byproduct of this, we is, um, it, it lowers the anxiety and, and uh, frustration that comes with a challenge. So instead of me coming to you, Craig, after you drop the ball on something and saying, Hey, Craig, man, you blew it on this thing yesterday. Like we've got to, we got to, we got to regroup and go whatever. Instead, I say, Hey, Craig, we challenge each other. Right. And you've already subscribed to this series of principles. You're on this team for a reason. And you've said these 10 we's are part of your, our cultural manifesto. So when I come to you and say that, you know, I'm coming with data and or experience you know it's not personal and you know you're obligated to do the same if if the, the roles were reversed so it creates this almost the inverse of harmony uh, or the opposite of harmony but all towards the mean of 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 improvement continuous improvement um i include this line in the book or this this part of the book where i talk about sharks and how analogous they are to progress and moving forward it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek but it, it goes like this the shark if he doesn't continue to swim, they sink and they ultimately perish. Now it's not that black and white. There are some conditions that happen in between, right? But I think, I think all of us are the same teams, are the same, the corporate world's the same. If we're not, uh, if we don't experience friction, if we don't keep moving forward, if we don't keep looking for the next best mousetrap, one of two things will happen. 
we'll get lapped by our competition or we're going to live a life of mediocrity. And I think both of those scenarios suck. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And look, this may challenge people in kind of my observation here as well. A lot of companies and teams that focus on diversity and inclusion do it. And, and they're like, you know, we want diversity of thought so we get better ideas, but they do it in a way where they want everyone to be harmonious and keep the peace and keep everyone happy. And and so they've got to realize that it, that's not actually what happens if you bring diversity into and inclusion into an environment. There's actually tension, but you need to have, you need to understand how and create spaces where people can, as you say, challenge um, in a diplomatic way, right? You've got to, it can't just be opinionated, but you've got to be able to do it quickly and openly. That's what I find in high-performing teams. You know, we had... I was part of a New Zealand record-breaking unbeaten streak in sport of 272 games in field hockey and premier field hockey. And th- we haven't found another sports team in the world yet that has r- gone anywhere near it. Most of the, I think the biggest one is around 170 type thing. Now we had a very, very, very diverse group of people uh, in that team. And you know, it's 16 years without losing a game. And actually they went 21 games and they lost one game in the middle of uh, after five years and then they went to 16 years unbeaten and but what i noticed there was that every there, there was when something was people didn't like like or they had a different perspective on something they would openly share it yes but it was really fast and yes. literally you would just you'd then move on because you knew that you couldn't hold on to it because it was going to be it was going to hold back the team yeah and so we yeah. you always had in your mind the bigger picture but we needed to discuss them quickly to remove the tension so that we could be free to play our role and be able to work together for that common goal now the goal then wasn't to go to 172 games unbeaten no one ever <laughs> thinks of that in a in a beaten streak when you play sport you were just there yeah. to improve and hopefully win that next game like that that's your goal is to try and keep winning but you're not thinking of turn a semi two that was just something amazing that happened over a period of time Um, but i really like that we challenge either and it has to be diplomatically i really like that number eight it's a great one it has to well craig number nine wasn't an accident it's we embrace challenge Mm. so if you're going to be in an organization where you want you want you want you want that organization to be rich with challenge you you better be prepared to receive it and embrace it and the challenges come from all angles right they come from any members of the team externally uh in, industry headwinds they come from all all angles so if if we don't agree to embrace those you know like that shark we're just not we're just not going to advance you you bring up an interesting angle though um and i think i think often people are are hesitant to talk about some of the negatives that come with diversity and inclusion initiatives. And um, while we can agree there is tons of value, we want people to be their authentic selves. We want them to bring their perspectives to the table, their experiences, their unique suggestions and salute. We want that, right? But at the same time, we almost, look, here's my favorite example. In, in, In my experience in the corporate world, we actually have two different vocabularies. There's the there's the dialogue and, and the words that I use inside the workplace. And then there's my vocabulary outside the workplace. When was the last time you ever asked your significant other, 
about their deliverables? Or when was the last time you asked your significant other, uh, let's, you know, uh, per our conversation yesterday at dinner, you had some action items. We don't even talk that way, man. So, so the organization begins to filter us from day one. Yeah. So we're, so, and then when you layer on diversity and inclusion initiatives on top of that, just for the sake of them, uh, we, I, I think we're just filtering people's authentic selves and the best ideas never make it to the light of day. Yeah. Great point. I mean, I talk about the un unintended consequences of diversity and inclusion, which kind of disrupts people when they kind of stand back and go, whoa, hang on. Nobody wants to talk here? about it. Don't, yeah, don't touch yeah. this. And, yeah. and obviously yeah. the harmony one is one of them. And Another one is when you include someone, you will then exclude someone else. So, you know, just because you're going to include some, you know, some different people um, or different perspectives, different ideas, you need to tread carefully because is that going to disrupt something that's already working well? And is that the appropriate place to add diversity and inclusion? And and also I think the the word um, inclusion has been hijacked. Now it's been hijacked for all the right reasons. Yeah. Right. So if I say yeah. inclusion, automatically you go to I need to include minority groups. Yeah. But yeah, every single human being, all eight billion people. Well, it's probably getting close to nine billion now because I'm sure they can't count everyone on this planet. And um, people on this planet have been excluded multiple times. You know, I've lived in multiple countries just because I'm a white, middle-aged male. I'm not privileged. I've been in many situations where I feel excluded, but I'm okay. I, yeah. I, like, and here's a great example of it. I have a daughter that turns one tomorrow. And awesome. You know, I, I want to share a lot, as many life experiences as I can with her. So I take her out stand up paddleboarding. Um, I've got a little front bike seat that will, so, you know, tomorrow we can start riding together. Um, but one of the things is my wife could go to a mums and bubs class. We're literally at the gym. Mum could go do some workouts and the kids sit there in their prams and there's a group of them that do it. Now, I would love to do something like that too because there's no other way I can take the baby into the gym. For obviously, for, for, for all good reasons of safety and things like that. Makes sense. I get it. And so I could play an inclusion card and go, hang on. Well, you're excluding me. I, I want to be included in this too. However... That would be irresponsible of me. Why? Because those mums have had a shared experience and come for a certain reason. Now, just because I want to feel included by, because there's no other option at present, that would be irresponsible for me. Now, what would the responsible thing would be for me is to try and create a parents and Major babies own. class or a men and babies class. Now, that would be the responsible thing. And so I think we we need to look at situations and make the right decisions for the right reasons and i'm all for the diversity and inclusion that has you know the of, of supporting minorities and giving them a voice that is so important and and some of them are neglected through bias and all sorts of different reasons and we do need to give them those equal opportunities yep. but when it comes to building cultures and teams and being able to create great projects and that we've got to we can't just tick a box. We can't just um, create diversity inclusion just because someone said we had to or we feel obligated to. It has to be for the right reasons. Yeah. And you know, so I think we have to make decisions based on that and not be hamstrung what society thinks we must do. That's so well. I have, no, I have 
I have no response to that other than it's brilliantly said. It really is. And you said something also that I think is consistent with a comment you made earlier, and that is around recognizing, we talked about legacy at the individual level, but you, you talked about not making changes to the things that have worked historically, but rather let's address the things that need attention. I think there's a very common element to, to the scenario you just mentioned, yeah. right? The, the mums in these, in these, in these classes, like they're happy with what they've got going on. It serves a purpose for them. So for you to interrupt that just to make you feel included, disrupt, I think it's a very similar approach to like not swinging a sledgehammer when you enter an organization, because there, there certainly in most cases are a lot of things that are going well. Let's identify what's not going well. Let's just don't rip the whole thing up because we feel like we have the ability or authority to do so. Uh, look at it this way. I, I, when I lived in Asia, there were many times I was in conversations where I did not understand what was going on. Yeah. But it's not, it, it's not my right for them to go speak in English. Like, it's make my responsibility better. to go learn their language. And so I if I can't understand, that's not their problem. That's my yeah. problem. I need to take responsibility for that from, yeah. from that section. And so whether that is looking at other ways of communicating, if I can't pick up the language quick enough, then that's that's my responsibility. It's not for me to sit back and go, um, hey, team, I don't understand. You need to talk in English so I can be part of this. No, no it's, that's not you how imagine? it works. <laughs> well, they're probably <laughs> kind enough in place like Taiwan and they would. They, they would find a way. And they do, to be honest, they do. They find really? a way to... Um, Either if they can't speak English, they will find someone else that does and do a translation. Like they're just amazing people. But I'm like, if you come to New Zealand or Australia and we're not going to go and find someone that speaks your language, like how many times would that happen in the USA? Like literally, would you, if someone come in who was speaking Swahili, would you try and go out of your way to find someone else that speaks Swahili that you could use a translation? It's not going to happen. Uh, I don't. No, like, no. like it's not likely to happen, but there... In a place like Taiwan, that fascinated me. I love that human behavior. I'm like, wow, what incredible people that really care that. about the human to go, you know what? I'm going to go out of my way to be able to help you because yeah. I can't communicate with you in your language. So let's find a way we can. And I just think that's amazing. Obviously, we're yeah. going to hijack that or it's been hijacked now where we literally got artificial intelligence that on the fly can translate for you, um, which is happening on video conferencing calls and phone and and can happen instantaneously now so we kind of got a bit of a cheat sheet going forward it takes out a little bit of the fun <laughs> of what i used to have in in asia um because i just love that component very yeah. cool how long were you in asia uh so i lived in taiwan seven and a half years i was then in saudi arabia for just under a year and then in thailand for two and a half so yeah just over where are we 11 years yeah, and, it was great. And, and loved it. Um, have you noticed really stark differences yeah, in in what it takes to be an effective leader in each of those geographies, or everything similar, mostly? Okay, certain aspects are the same. It's still about the people, etc. You've still got to have outcomes. You've still got to be able to get people to do things. Now, the way they motivate might be a bit different. The way the pace, maybe. Sorry, the pace, maybe as well pace yep decision pace making we, is different decision yeah. making is definitely different um, there's yeah. still a lot of hierarchies that happen and there's still a lot of respect for people in different positions so that can be a handbrake to progress okay. um, 
yeah, no, there, there's quite a lot of different cultural aspects when it comes to leadership. And I think it's important. Like if you are in a role where you're dealing with people in different cultures, even in your own country, let alone looking at other countries, the more you can understand and learn in the way that they do business or the way that they lead or the way that they communicate or the hierarchies of things is important because you're not going to change that in one conversation. Yeah. Like you're not going to get them to come down to your level. That's that's harmony kicking in again. <laughs> yeah, like unity is like okay, we've got a we've got a commonality of an outcome here. Now, all right, what do we need to do in the way that we do things to make that work? Um, and so like that grounding I've had living in different countries and working with so many people from different cultures around the world gives me a, a really unique perspective when it comes to communicating with people and knowing really? that. Just because it's I'm comfortable in this way, or this is what I know, what I do, is I have to be alert and aware to how they do things, how they communicate, what is respectful in their culture, um, and and you're not always going to get it right, but at least you need to be open to. Right, I need to be a bit agile and adaptable here in the way that we do business. Uh, let's look at negotiating, for instance. Yeah. Negotiating in Australia. If I literally put a proposal to someone, they will go yes or no based on the price. They won't negotiate the price. Whereas if I go to India, man, you're in for a battle. Like you, you're it's in always for a, about the price. It, it's, a, right. it's about the price, like the competition, yeah. and they're just going to yeah. go for it. Yeah. Um, so very two very different negotiating styles and length of negotiation and the and and what silence might mean as well in the negotiation. Oh. So silence can mean different things or even what yes means in different cultures. Because yes really? just means that, yeah, I'm listening. It doesn't mean I've agreed on it yet. Not agreement, I see. So we have to be very careful uh, when we start to go intercultural um, and, and when we're in conversation, negotiating, leadership, etc., that there is a lot of nuances that you've got to yeah. be aware of. And just because it's worked where you've come from, it doesn't mean it's going to work there. You know, it strikes me as you walk through that um, we could we could uh, substitute or replace country and everything you just said in my mind anyway with organization or layers in an organization because how we approach different layers of an organization or how we approach different people in an organization and how we approach within one organization versus another rarely is it going to be identical certainly not not the same uh in a lot of that uh, and i say that because i get this question a lot like how do i motivate people what's the best path it, it's different for each person everybody everybody is motivated by something different and, and and you you inspire them in different ways so i think it's fascinating even at the most macro of levels how we approach leadership uh is situational based and it's unique to the person on the other end of the table. I was on an executive coaching call this morning, actually, and we were talking about, uh, this fellow was talking about, he's got some perception issues that he wants to take care of. He thinks people perceive him in a way that is not really him. It's not authentic to him. Hmm. And he's frustrated by that. And I said, I appreciate your frustration, but at the end of the day, how you think you come across is almost irrelevant. How others receive your guidance, your coaching, your motivation, your inspiration, their, your words, how you say things, that that matters a whole hell of a lot more than what you think. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough concept for people to grasp because it's said, oh man, I know, I know I'm coming. I know I was clear of my expectations. I know I, I rallied the troops yesterday, but yet we still didn't hit our goal. 
okay, you might think you did, but the people on the receiving end, they're the ones that matter. They have to buy in to the way that you're approaching them. Same, fascinating country, organization, layer inside of organization. It's all the same. And as I said before, you know, 8 billion people separated by their DNA, separated by 1%. However, we can be in a similar environment and everyone's so, so different. So, so true. that's the so beauty, true. the beauty of leadership, the beauty of being able to inspire people to draw out their own motivation. Uh, the ability to negotiate or have a conversation is uh, so unique and fun. Amen. Which is good. Now, you, you talked about this begin with we and the whole, the, the 10 we principles. Where did that come from? You know, I, I, I'm asked that a lot and I wish I had some sexy story about a muse on my shoulder and, and there was this, you know, epiphany that hit me, but, um, it, it, it really came very organically, almost out of fear. So, um, I, it was probably 2016, 2017. I, I really felt, I started to feel so apathetic towards, towards the whole corporate gig. I, at that point had been in corporate America for about 23, 24 years huge organizations and I had seen so much duplicity toxicity and just dysfunction. And I left a really large organization with a really good comp package, you know, had the fancy title. And I told myself, if I go back into this fray, it's going to be done in a way that, that is a little unique, different than what I'd ever seen before. I want to be the leader that I never had. Well, be careful what you wish for, because around 2017, I was offered a role to lead uh, 15,000 people um, in in some really, really purpose-driven work. But I was warned there was a bit of dysfunction that needed to be addressed. And the the the, the fellow that hired me even went as far to, to identify a couple of people that, that he said don't belong here any longer. They've got to go. So about 60 days into this new role, um, I scheduled um, a leadership meeting. And I had 40 or 50 of the top leaders of that organization all in a room. And the night before I had that gut check moment was like, okay, man, th this is, this is what you signed up for and be careful what you wish for, because now you have a tie and, and I have pretty close to autonomy as close to, as close to, to kind of like a, this is your show, do it and, and let the results kind of be what they may. Cause my, my leader at the time, um, he kind of handed it to me. He was, wasn't disconnected, but he certainly wasn't involved the night before I was in my hotel room. Uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, about to meet with these 40 or 50 folks. I had nothing documented. I had no idea what I was going to say. So I just spoke from the heart. I put my laptop in my lap. I was still wearing that day's suit. And about two hours later, all I had was 10 sentences in front of me. Each of them began with the word we. I'm not super creative, Craig. So I have the 10 we's in front of me. And the next morning I stepped out in front of those leaders and I shared and I said, God, and by the way, the entire presentation and every presentation I've given since then, every speech, the entire presentation's in black and white, because I feel very strongly. There's not a lot of shades of gray when we're trying to align on the principles that fuel our organization. And for your audience, I'm, it's kind of obvious, but just, just, just to be safe, a principle is nothing more than a series of fundamental beliefs. It's what we hold to be true. It's our system of beliefs. And I had this hunch that if I could get this team of leaders to, to align around these series of principles, these 10 principles in a very black and white way, we're, we're not going to live them occasionally. We're not going to live them when the moment uh, is right. We're going to live them from this moment forward. And I was very, very direct to say, I will hold you accountable 
to these principles. And if you're not living them, I will call you out for them. And when you are, I will reward you. But I expect you to do the same to me. If you see me behaving in a way that's any way contrary to what, what we're evangelizing and talking about here today, then I am challenging you to grab me by the ear and say, dude, you're a fraud. You're, you're, you're not being authentic. You're not living these principles and I will react appropriately. So um, 50% of that audience stared at me with complete optimism and excitement. It was palpable. Um, uh, a quarter of the remaining half were kind of skeptical in the, the last quarter. They just thought I was full of it. They didn't, they didn't, they just thought here's another guy in a, some shiny shoes and a start shirt that we've heard all this before. Um, which was, I'm too stubborn to, to allow that to affect me. And I had to earn their trust. I had to earn their belief in what I was evangelizing. So fast forward, uh, what now, seven years later, those principles are still the cultural manifesto for that organization, that part of that, or that portfolio of that organization, the division, for lack of a better term. 15,000 people, it's on their annual reviews. They have signage. They have, I, I still wear a 10 Wee's bracelet from that many years ago and will never take it off until the paint runs off and then I'll grab another one. Um, but it is, so in one, one, I think, final commentary on the success of that transformation is there are a handful of leaders from that team, and I've, I left in 2019. There's a handful of leaders from that team with whom I still have almost monthly, if not every five or six weeks, one-on-one uh, -on -one check-ins okay. where we check on each other. We bounce career issues or, or challenges off of one another. We, we help each other get better. And I don't think that is the that's not the foundation of anything other than trust. That's born out of trust. Um, so I'm convinced that these principles, uh, not, not only because I've seen them transform people's leadership acumen and organizations all at the same time, not just because I've seen it firsthand, which I have now that the book's been out for a little over a year, um, hit wall street journal and USA today, bestseller status. I hear from strangers saying how these principles have not only changed their lives inside the corporate world, but I hear pretty regularly now, almost once a month, I would say, where people say the principles have guided and changed how they raise their children. Uh, because again, that system of beliefs is really hard to replicate. And when we're aligned around it, we're just so much better positioned for success, continuity, and, and frankly, to be much more high functioning. Cool. I, I love that. Actually, you talk about not being creative. I think you are very, very creative. Here's the reason oh. why. <laughs> is It's so easy to make things complex in this world. The most difficult challenge is to make things simple. Yeah. And so why this is effective is your creativity is not to, is to not do what a lot of people try and do and think they're being creative and they end up making it complex. You've actually simplified it and there's the level of creativity. And so I love the idea of the black and white. I love that everything starts with we. There's, it's a lot easier for people to catch and understand. So I really want to acknowledge you for your creativity when you thought you may not have been, but in fact, uh, keeping it simple is probably the most creative thing you, anyone can ever do. Yeah, thank you for that. And that, by the way, um, the book is written um, very purposefully as not some fancy MBA textbook. I don't use a bunch of fancy corporate buzzword bingo type stuff. I I, I wrote it very similarly. Um, I guess if you want to call that creative, I'll take it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, so a couple here kind of stand out for me. One is we measure ourselves by outcomes, not activity. And we see a lot of people who try and look productive 
just because they're damn well busy. So I, this one really stood out for me as one that I, I feel a lot of people need to approach is like, it doesn't matter how much work you do, as long as you achieve the damn outcome, we get the outcome. That's it. I don't really care how you got there. That's but, it. But try not to spend too much time doing it. Like what's the fastest way we can get to that outcome? So true. And I think where this is most obvious is the organization that has, or the leader uh, that has more meetings on a calendar than the calendar will fit double, triple booked. And then they wear that schedule. Like it's a badge of honor. And I, I'm not impressed with it. I, you know, whether, whether it's my, my executive coaching clients or, or just friends and family, it's like, I am not impressed by your level of effort. I am impressed by the outcomes you deliver. And some people take exception with that. And I understand that, but I think we've over-indexed and have become this, um, in many ways, like participation or ribbon, uh, awards because someone works hard. Um, I want my teams to work hard, but I really want them to work smart. And that sounds like such a cliche, but I would go as far to tell my teams, I don't care if you do your job from the beach. We were already largely remote in, in, in higher, in some cases hybrid, but when you set an expectation or a series of expectations with members of your team, you should not also set the expectation with how they get there with one exception. Of course, we want to do it in a, in a professional, in a diplomatic, in a high-functioning, in a repeatable way. Like We don't want to alienate people to get results because that can be done too, but that's, that's not sustainable and that is, that's a recipe for not ending well. So, and, and, and I say it like this, I include this, this kind of tongue in cheek thing in the book where I say, I am really, really thrilled that my Uber driver put gasoline in the car before, before they pick me up. But I didn't pay for that. I paid for the ride from point A to point B, the activity of them putting fuel in the car, greatly appreciated. But that's not why, that's not how they're making money off me. And, and if you, and if people confuse that, look in the business world and most aspects of life, actually people pay for results. And I think we, in big companies that gets lost and it almost translates into busyness. They, 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 they live and operate as if we get paid for how busy we are. In most cases, man, I would challenge you if your clients knew that you had 11 meetings yesterday or booked half the double booked half of the day, but they don't see the output. They don't see that their relationship or the product or service you deliver for them improving. They don't want you your consumers don't want you buried in meetings. They want you buried in solving their problems. Uh, so I just felt it was really important to include that. Like, I'm really grateful when the team works hard. I want all of us to work hard, but I want us to work smart and always keep an eye on the outcome. One last example drives me crazy. And I bet you can relate to this is how many times have we sat in a meeting and we've lost sight of A, why we're even in the meeting or the meeting ends. And it's like, what the hell did we just accomplish? Yeah. Right. So, so if, if we're engaged in activity, I just encourage and challenge people, double check, why are we here? And what are we trying to solve? And if the conversation is not traveling down the path to solve and reach that ultimate outcome, again, it's back to expectation setting. If we're not able to do that, then why are we here? And I would, I, I became quite unpopular every now and then in some meetings where I'd go in and half, you know, we'd be 10, 15 minutes into the meeting. I'm like, what are we doing? What are we here to solve? Okay, let's get back to that. And this other stuff, it's all noise. Well, if you if you like, maybe we'll schedule time some other point to discuss this. But we're here for X, Y, and Z. Let's keep the con let's keep the conversation to that. Um, 
or someone will sign up for work or sign up. They have some initiative they're going to run with, but it's not time bound. We don't know who's on deck to complete the work. We don't know what their dependencies are, what they need to be effective to deliver that work. We just say, okay, Craig's got it. And we move on. Well, I just don't think that's a recipe for success. We've got to be more explicit in who's doing what and by when. Yeah. Yeah. The intention and then the responsibility of uh, having clarity on roles and what the outcome is going to be is so important. So, Huge. so important. It's everything. Meetings. Yeah. Actually, just on meetings, this is an interesting one. Like we heard when COVID hit, like we heard some different messages from different companies. Some were like, um, okay, we've we've reduced the length of meeting because people are getting meeting fatigue. But then we were hearing other companies going, yeah, we've reduced the meeting size, but we're having more meetings than we've ever had. Um, one of the unintended consequences I found of people shortening meetings where they were losing the ability to connect on a human level and understand each other in that high, in that remote working world. Different when yeah. you're in person because you can bump into each other for coffees, et cetera. Yeah. But I found a lot of people lost that ability to connect on a human level because the meetings become so condensed, so focused that they lost the opportunity to give, to ensure that people were uh, given the space to speak up, even just speak up around the topic, the intended topic. What have you seen? Have you seen a better balance in the way that meetings are being delivered now? Or is are people still kind of polarized? Either they're, they're doing meetings that are wasting too much time or they're too yeah. focused and they're missing the yeah. whole culture piece. I think it's more of the latter. Um, and I th it, gosh, man, it's so similar to the diversity conversation. We just had people, they, they take a good idea and they take it to the extreme, right? So, okay, we're hearing that we have meeting fatigue because meetings are too long. So let's be draconian and really aggressive to make sure that our meetings are confined to a much smaller win window of time. Whereas the opposite was true prior to COVID, we would schedule a 60 minute meeting for something that could probably take 25, 35 minutes. I mean, what's the beauty of 60 minutes? Why? What's the beauty of 30 minutes? Why don't we have regularly scheduled 15 minute meetings or 20 minute meetings? So I think it's situational. And I think when the topic, when, when, I, I'll say it this way, when, when we're in a meeting and we're having lively debate or conversation that is all angled towards the outcome that we agreed to discuss for this meeting, if we run over, we run over. Mm. And I think, and that's not popular in some areas because I, and I get it, it disrupts the next meeting or disrupts something else that needs to be done. I get that. But what's worse like we circle around an issue and reschedule time to to finish the conversation. But if so if we're having lively interaction around the topic and it is driving towards the outcome, I want that to I want that conversation to continue. Um, but I think we have to be more mindful of who we invite to these meetings because sometimes people use the distribution list as like a as a CYA. They want to cover their ass and make sure that everybody that could have an opinion is invited. Well, I, I, I kind of like this rule of seven, that anytime you have a meeting of more than seven people, it's really hard to get anything done because it, it, invariably someone, people want to, they want to act like they're involved. Even if they have nothing really to add, they will add dialogue to the conversation. They will insert their thoughts and not necessarily we're any better off for that, but I feel that they, they, they feel like an obligation to participate. Um, so it's really situational. I think it starts with including the right number of people scheduling the right length of time. Um, now, one thing is hard to to address, and I think we've got to be purposeful about, and that's that connection, right? And and so if 
if you have a series of meetings throughout the day and, and there's a commonality or a common thread to the number, to the people that are in those meetings. So Bob's in the eight o'clock, but he's also in the 10 o'clock and he's also in the three o'clock and maybe Kelly is as well. And you know that going in as a, as a leader or leader of leaders, maybe you just personally dedicate three to five minutes to the top of that eight o'clock meeting to check in with Bob. How was Kelly's weekend? And you kind of set that table for the rest of the day. Mm. Uh, and then as new people come into the, the separate meetings or different meetings throughout the day, you take the opportunity to welcome them. Hey, check in real, real briefly at the top of that meeting as well. So people do feel the personal connection that maybe we didn't have prior to COVID. Um, but I will add this. One thing that's kind of frustrating to me is, um, not frustrating, but I think it's an example of something gone too far. Gone are the days of the teleconference. No longer do we have dial-ins. Everything is a Zoom or a Teams meeting or a WebEx or whatever. And I think that is, I think those are the right choices. That's the right venue in some cases. But I also think when everyone is on video, we're filtered. How's my lighting? How do I, do I look okay? Like, man, I look like shit today. Or was my background okay? Are they going to know I'm in a different location? So we don't even realize it, but we're, we're spending brain power on things other than problem solving. We focus more on the aesthetics of the interaction, whereas I happen to believe a phone call or being on the phone with one or a few people, we're much more focused on the topic at hand and, we're, and we speak a little more freely because we know we don't have this visual thing where people might be judging us throughout the conversation. Mm-hmm. Cool. Not a popular opinion, by the way. I recognize that, but I do. No, I, it's true. It's how it's I feel. True. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Uh, one other one here, I'm just curious to kind of see as we build more greater remote working or hybrid working workforces is number six there. We pick each other up. Yeah. And what can we do to ensure we do this well when we're not seeing each other in person on a regular basis? Because this is one where I feel is missed a lot in the remote and hybrid working space. Yeah, and I think for me to to really effectively answer that, I've got to set a little bit of context. So the two we's prior to we pick each other up, we number four is we take action, and we number five is we own our mistakes. So in a, in a in a what I've coined a culture of excellence, I want my teams to raise their hand when they recognize something needs to be addressed. I want my team to point out areas of opportunity. Uh, in many organizations, there's little to no incentive to do that other than you get more work. So people just kind of keep their head down, even though they know something is on fire around the corner. That's not an op- that's not a, an organization that's focused on excellence and being the best. So if I want my team to take action, I must be prepared for mistakes because by definition, if we're trying something new, we're not going to be good at it. Or we recognize something's broken. Well, it's broken for a reason. And we should probably acknowledge that we might break it worse or we're going to make mistakes in trying to fix it. So if we've level set that I want everyone to take action and we want everyone to to um, to own their mistakes when something happens, the best way to make sure that team members feel safe to own those mistakes is to do what? It's to pick them up. So in that order, those we's are really important. So I'm going to take action. I might screw up along the way, but that's okay because I know I'm in an environment where people are going to pick me up. Now, as it relates to your question specifically, we take action. There are a couple things that I think are really important in, take, in, in, in picking each other up, rather. A couple of things really important. As a human, as a human, never mind the corporate world, I think it's an obligation when Craig's down and I see Craig's in a little bit of a different spirit than he usually is, I need to walk over and to the degree I'm comfortable without making him uncomfortable, be like, what's up, man? You okay? Just, just, just checking in on you. You look, you look like you might be wearing something today. You okay? 
you know, as a human, right? Yeah. As a leader inside of an organization, obviously that's a requirement. It's an obligation to make sure that people are at their best. You know, what noise is in the system standing in the way for them being excellent? You know, we all bring baggage to work. Yet, you know, we have divorces, we have childcare issues, we have all kinds of things that stand in the way of us being our best selves at work. So we have to recognize that, be aware of that, and almost account for it at times. But the leader's obligation goes one step further. It's not just an obligation to pick someone up when they stumbled. It's the leader's obligation to propel members of the team and those around them to new heights. So what does that mean? It means helping them get their next job. It means helping them become better at their existing job. And it might even mean helping them leave your team. So when a, when a member of the team expresses a desire to go do something else, perhaps it's uh, in another team on this, in the same company, or perhaps it is even maybe even worse that they want to leave the company altogether because they have another opportunity that is something that you can't match. If you're a good leader and you care about your team and you care about them as a person, you will help them get there. You will help them with their resume. You will help them do mock interviews. It's blasphemy in some circles to talk this way, but here's why I landed on this one. Many, many years ago, I had a member of my team, someone I, I just respect so deeply. He came to me and said, Kyle, I've got an opportunity at another organization, great salary, uh, great title. I know we've got a lot of history together, but I think I'm going to take the role. But I've got to go through the interview process and we're gonna, you know, we'll see how, how, it, how it works out. But I do think this is something I want to pursue. My reaction was, Steve, fantastic. How can I help you? Let's work on your resume together. Let's do mock interviews. I want to make sure you are so well positioned for that job that they have no other choice than to give it to you. Well, Steve and I met, we got him ready, man. He was so ready. He didn't get the job, but what level of loyalty and commitment to our team and to me, do you think he had when he came back after not getting that job? I proved to him that I cared about him and his journey and his growth, not about what he could do for me or what he could do for our team. I cared about his journey. So I think that's the second component that's often overlooked or never even considered uh, when it comes to picking someone up. And you touched on care there. And to me, when people ask me, you know, what is your number one role as a leader when you're in high performance as a coach? Um, as, a, as a parent, it is more than 50% of my role is care. And so it was oh, lovely to hear what you just said then. I love that. big word. It's a oh, big word. It's a small word, but super powerful. Right on. We all uh, we all know smart people ask great. Uh, sorry, we all know that smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. But when was the last time you did something before the first time? Oh my goodness! Um, well, I tried some new. <laughs> this is probably not the best answer I could give. I tried some new things in the gym this morning. I'm working on some different stuff, trying to get my bad back, uh, back functioning. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question actually, because we, we get into this mode of, of the, of our corporate lives where it's kind of lather, rinse, repeat, got our monthly business reviews. The metrics are high. The metrics are low. What I like to think about is how to take different approaches to achieve those metrics for, mm -hmm. for the first time or to hit a new height or a new record or a new level of those metrics. Um, so I, I think it's, it's almost uh, at least monthly, but I, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize the different angles to get to the same destination is a real thing. And it's, 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 there's lots of opportunities to get somewhere, uh, and, and asking someone to get there in a different manner, uh, maybe off-putting to them. So we have to respect their ability and their desire to get to the end destination. 
but I don't think it's out of line to ask, um, to, to be open, ask your team to be open for different approaches. But at the end of the day, as we mentioned earlier, let them take it themselves. Um, that, that's a long-winded answer and a long-winded way of saying, I can't think of, of a recent scenario where that's happened to me. That's all right. I, I like that you Even tried real. something different in the gym and I'll check in in a couple of days and see how your muscles are. <laughs> see how sore I am? Yeah, man. <laughs> what I can is the feel one it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? I don't know if it's a question that I'd, that I'd like to solve as much as it is a situational thing that I would like to solve. I, w I wish we could do better. We collectively humans, especially in America, could disagree better. I wish we could disagree and still be cordial. I wish we could disagree with one another, respect each other's opinion, as crazy as someone else's position might be, but you not vilify them for, for not sharing the same position. I think that is that is a real slippery slope, at least in America, where, I've, where, where if we disagree on something ideologically, politically, um, I mean, at any level, we vilify that person and we can't, there's this, per, this, this perception that you can't even be friends with someone who has a different political ideology than you. And I think that's nonsense because that's one element, one aspect of my being, of my existence and, and there's so, I guess another way of saying it is that we have so many more things in common than that which divide us. And when we, if we could agree to disagree more eloquently, more productively, um, I just think the world would be a better place. Wouldn't governments get so much more done if they took that approach? <laughs> you said it, brother. You, you said it. I mean, I just... And maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I just truly believe it. I don't care. I just don't care enough about the things that we disagree on to spend energy vilifying you for your own opinions. I care about what's we have, what we have in common and how we grow from there. Yeah. Well said on the political front. Yeah. <laughs> it was very diplomatic of me. Uh, what <laughs> for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? Harry Kramer, um, who, who as a name you may not know, uh, in the '90s was the CEO of a multi-billion-dollar healthcare firm called Baxter International. Um, I was very, very considering myself extremely lucky to have crossed paths with him in business school. He was a professor, um, and uh, he's written a few uh, really, really important leadership books. My favorite is From Values to Action. And, um, and Harry lives this value-based life that is not too dissimilar from what I have, what I, what I live and evangelize a principle-based life, uh, uh, with, with one very, very big difference. So, you know, as I've mentioned these principles where they were developed in my journey and how I continue to evangelize them on stage, the book, whatever, um, Harry, uh, evangelized these four values. There are four values in his, in his list, um, and he oversaw the company through a crisis unlike very, very few organizations will ever face. They, they built, they manufacture um, dialysis equipment among a million other things. And in the 90s, they had a faulty machine that resulted in the deaths of 53 people. 
um, talk about crisis, like real tragedy. Um, and if you were to Google this, you would see several examples of Harry stepping out front saying, we blew it. This is, this is, we, we've, we've done the analysis. We made the mistakes. He visited the homes of family members of the deceased, not all of them, but many of them. Um, he, he, he went to the board to say, I need a pay cut or, or withhold a portion, if not all of my bonus, same, uh, as my leadership team, we dropped the ball on this and we need to be held accountable for it. I just don't think you see that level of ownership any longer, or at least not very often. Um, and here's a guy. So I met him in 2012 and, uh, of course this, this, this tragedy was, you know, a decade more removed. He's the same guy. He's the same. I could call him right now and ask him any number of leadership questions. And if he doesn't answer, I will hear back from him today. And I'm not special. That's if anyone that crosses his path, they know that he genuinely cares about you, your growth, your journey. And I just couldn't be a bigger fan. I'm kind of a fanboy of him and I'm, I'm not, not ashamed to admit it. Um, I think your audience would have a lot, find a lot of value in Harry Kramer, K-R-A-E-M-E-R, Kramer. Love it. Love it. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. It's one of those ones where we would probably go over time in a meeting because we're and uh, we're we're getting <laughs> to some really good places. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do, and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on every essentially every social media platform at Kyle McDowell Inc. is the handle. My website is kylemcdowellinc.com. Uh, the book is Begin with We. 10 Principles for Building and Sustaining a Culture of Excellence. And I will say this, I'll leave you with this, man, because I get this question a lot at, at the closing of most podcasts, how do folks reach you? When I say it and I share those handles, it's not because I want your followership. It's not because I want you to buy a book. It's because I want to help. As, as cliche and as corny as that might sound, it's absolutely true. My favorite example of this, uh, it's been about two weeks now on a Sunday afternoon, I got an email uh, to my website uh, from a woman named Dixie, uh, Dixie Sexton is her name. Shout out Dixie. Um, she reached out to say, uh, she shared some of the, the issues and kind of rough patches that her team had experienced at this, I think it's a hospital system, uh, throughout the previous year. And then she wanted to say, uh, her leader, a fellow by the name of Jim had, uh, uh, wholesale embraced the principles of the book and they were the driving force about out how they had turned the corner, right? Her team was known as the black hole prior to the, according to her, known as the black hole. People didn't want to go work there. It just wasn't a place that you felt like that many people perceived uh, that would offer a lot of growth. But she also said Jim was tired. Uh, it was a rough year on him and his, his leadership tank was on empty. And she asked if I would just write a letter, write a letter that they could frame and hang in his office. So when he was stressed or down or kind of need of a, a shot in the arm, he could look at this letter. I did way more than that. Um, but the fact that someone reached out and, and, and implied that I would have that impact on someone uh, on his journey and on her journey, like I said earlier, what a privilege, man. Wow. So I, I share those handles and I share the website with full understanding and expectation and hope that people reach out because I'm, I'm here to help. Kyle, it's been a fascinating conversation. Love getting to know you and understanding how you are as a human being, but uh, also as a leader and someone who really cares and is there to help people. Uh, talking about you from your early days wanting to be the quarterback and how you've probably uh, used a lot of sport analogies in the way that you have looked at the corporate world and been able to f stay focused and create those cultures of excellence too. 
that f that moment of vulnerability when you sat there with a blank piece of paper in your lap for two hours and could only come up with 10 sentences feeling like you didn't quite have it but you actually had the creative nous in that moment to do something really special which is now leaving a legacy uh, i love what you're doing i could continue this conversation and maybe have uh, multiple episodes uh, but it's it's time to respect our listeners' time and also yours. So thank you very much for who you are, what you're doing in this world, and from your deepest intentions have always been there to to want to help and care for others. So thank you very much. Craig, back at you, man. You're doing really important work. I consider it an honor to be here to have this conversation with you. So keep keep on keeping on. Thank you. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>